Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea. Because in nature, it's always Herbal Hour. All right. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. We have a special guest today, Marissa Chadbourne. She's a licensed massage therapist and practitioner of myofascial release and craniosacral therapy. She's the founder of Touch of Health Myofascial Wellness Center in Sayville, New York. All right. Thank you for being on the show, Marissa. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you today? Very well. Uh, so I wanted to start this episode by asking you about your journey to body work. What originally uh, inspired you to pursue the path, mm-hmm. uh, changes along the way, and how you got to where you are today? Well, I first began as a massage therapist as a second career. My first uh, career was in television production, and I really found it to be um, draining, and my heart really wasn't into it. Mm-hmm. And I found massage therapy by accident. A friend of mine asked me to take a ride with her to go to the open house at New York College of Health Professions. And when I sat there and heard the dean speak about complementary medicine, it really struck a chord within me. Mm -hmm. And I decided this is what I want to pursue. And I kind of just went all in and, and changed careers. That's excellent. What kind of work were you doing in, uh, in TV? Uh, I was a production assistant. <laughs> this is where you start. Uh, and I actually worked for the Maury Povich show, believe mm. it or not. It was my internship from college. And as exciting and strange as it could be, I just knew that this was not where I was meant to end up in mm. life. So there was kind of some, uh, was there any like synchronicities or intuitions that you had about what led you to body work? Yeah, you know, at first I was just leading with my heart when I signed up for massage therapy school. Again, it struck a chord deep within me, and I knew this was the path I was supposed to pursue. But it wasn't until I found myofascial release that it really all made sense. Mm -hmm. So myofascial release wound up being an integral part of my healing, not just my physical healing, but also my emotional healing. So when I continued on this path as the patient, it very much inspired me to start taking classes and learning more about myofascial release. I really wanted to help people the same way that I was being helped. Mm. Well, there's this uh, myth, you may have heard of it, of of Chiron. It's this idea of the, the wounded healer. And I find that many health practitioners they uh, start off on that healing journey with themselves, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this saying from uh, Rumi that I really like, uh, the wound is where the light enters you. So it's this kind of archetypal idea that when you become a healer or you do any healing work, you begin with your own journey uh, first. Yes, so. that absolutely resonates with me. And I've actually been told that I do have Chiron in my chart. And when I read about the wounded healer, it really made sense of all that I experienced in life beforehand, because I definitely do attract the type of clients that go through the same type of healing that I went through myself. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, what was that in particular? Like what kinds of uh, health issues were you dealing with that you started uh, looking into this? I was very disconnected from my emotions, from my body at the time. When I first became a massage therapist, for example, and I tried meditating, I couldn't even sit in my body for one moment. And at that time in my early 20s, I really struggled with anxiety, depression. And I went for traditional therapy, like most of us do, and it was great. Uh, But I found that once I started to experience a type of body work that incorporated a somatic emotional response, that I had more of a balance within my emotions. And it wasn't clear to me why at the moment, but when I started to continue to study the mind-body connection, uh, one of my favorite books I found was Molecules of Emotion by Dr. Candace Pert. And she explains in depth of when we have trauma in our lives, we store it in two places, within our brain and within our body. And when we go to traditional talk therapy, we're able to access those stored trauma memories or feelings in our brain, but when we need to access it, the ones that are stuck in our body, we can only do it through the body. Mm. We can't talk it out. It has to be or start from a somatic place where you're really not in your thinking brain, but you're in your feeling space. And this is what inspired me the most. I feel like I went through most of my life not in that feeling space. And that's what this type of therapy, the gift I got from it, was that it helped me be able to really be in my body, to be able to connect with my emotions, to be able to connect with my bodily sensations. And now about, you know, 18 years later, I can easily meditate for 45 minutes to an hour, where when I, you know, you look back, I could barely stand to be in my body. Mm. So the process of that has um, been such a healing experience and such a gift to be able to experience this connection like later on in life with myself. And I feel like a lot of us do have that disconnection. Um, when we experience trauma, who wants to be in their body after experiencing trauma? Right. Have you heard of the uh, book, The Body Keeps uh, Score? Yes, that's, that's one of my favorites. That's a great one, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it goes into uh, how, as you were saying, trauma gets stored in our muscles and our body. How do you think that is? Like, what are some some theories that you might have on how, like, trauma can be stored in the in the body. Yes, and there's so many theories there, but I definitely lean towards more of the fascial system <laughs> theory. Um, so we look at trauma being stored in the body as stuck energy. So mm-hmm. we say emotion, energy in motion. And when that moment of trauma occurs, our subconscious does protect us in the moment. We either go through uh, freeze fight or flight, and it is the subconscious way of protecting us, but we also could take that, whether you want to say subtle energy or consciousness of that moment of time or space can get stuck within the tissue. In that moment of protection, we're also keeping part of that consciousness stuck within the the tissue. 
So when working with someone, when an emotional response does happen, it's actually that stuck energy finally being released and moving up and out throughout the body. And when we're able to feel that emotion, feel it as a sensation without a story attached to it, we just have this awareness and then we're able to let it go. Mm, that's an interesting thing you said there, to let the story go. Mm -hmm. uh, I think most of our problems could be summed up as the stories we tell about the experiences we have. The thing is the story gets gets remembered and it gets uh, replayed again and again. And one of the kind of antidotes to that, uh, as you've as you've written about, is uh, body awareness mm -hmm. and all these different uh, mindfulness practices that allow you to be in touch with your body, not necessarily uh, name emotions or name memories, and just uh, allow yourself that full experience. <clears throat> in your work, what kinds of releases have you uh, witnessed, if if any, with uh, with clients? in terms of like trauma release and things like that? A myriad of emotions will come up. And again, the story is not attached to it. We're not talking about it. I'm really just providing a safe space to be able to feel those sensations in the body and be able to be aware of it and let it go. So I don't have a story answer because I feel like it's very important not to attach to the story. Sometimes we that's what our brain gets stuck on, and that's a way we could also avoid feeling the uh, emotion is by getting stuck on the story. Mm -hmm. Like an over-analytical yes. explanation. I feel like this because of that, that, and this. Yes. Uh, but we don't really know, actually. Mm -hmm. So when we can let that go and really just dip into the feeling itself, I feel like that's when our body is also able to heal itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, um, that innate ability to heal. A mm -hmm. lot of times it seems like uh, just being able to relax is the, the cornerstone for that to happen. Uh, obviously, you know, modern civilization has us in our sympathetic mode. Mm -hmm. Go, 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 stress, this stressor, that stressor is, you know... It, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? All these kind of things, uh, they keep us trapped in this uh, pattern where we're kind of just uh, surviving rather than, you know, thriving and, and kind of being present in the moment and just uh, appreciating. Yeah, absolutely. It's like we're not fully present and aware. And you, just what you said, the go, go, go mentality. I feel like a lot of the work that I do with clients is really the first 10, 15 minutes is switching from that sympathetic into that parasympathetic state. And then that's really when the healing occurs. Mm -hmm. And what kinds of uh, practices do you, uh, do you work with, uh, with clients? Do you do a kind of like a meditation technique before you start or? Usually I'll start with trying to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. And there's mm -hmm. many different techniques too. So I'll choose the technique based on the discussion I've had with the client first. So most of them are myofascial release techniques. Some of them are craniosacral techniques. And if people are open to a deeper mind-body communication, then we'll also incorporate neuro-linguistic programming into the uh, treatment. And neuro-linguistic programming isn't 
uh, body work. It's not touch. It is a deep meditative state that we go into that we can have a conversation between the mind and body. But we have to be able to go in very, very deep meditation so that we can access the subconscious thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it always amazes me that when people are able to achieve this and go deeply, that their subconscious answers about their physical body are never like their conscious answers. Mm. They're always different. They always are surprised people, I think, too, mm -hmm. that they say certain things. And when we come back to the space and the present moment, um, they usually are, yeah, I'll just say surprised that there was something that they weren't aware of on a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. It's usually a very easy change to make. Mm -hmm. That's the interesting thing about the subconscious mind is uh, it's very hard to very hard to understand consciously. So I've been doing uh, work in interpreting dreams for, mm -hmm. for many years. And that's one of the areas where you really see kind of strange and fascinating things about how the mind works and how the subconscious mind works. It's uh, the way I describe the subconscious mind. Uh, dreams are really the, like the symbolic language of the mind that they communicate mm -hmm. uh, to you with, the subconscious to the conscious mind. And uh, as anyone knows, dreams are usually very hard to understand and they seem like they're, you know, they're out of nowhere or we don't necessarily always know what they pertain to. But when we investigate more into the uh, the different associations between the, the dream symbols and the person's like waking state, you can kind of come to this understanding of how the subconscious mind is working. But it's very enigmatic and it comes out in you know all sorts of different ways. Yeah, that's fascinating. I very much think too when it comes to dreams that they are so individually significant to us in so many ways. And that's how I feel when somebody experiences uh, that innate healing, it's always what's, like sometimes people will ask me, what are you picking up on? And I, I throw it back to them. What are you picking up on? Because really it matters is what you're feeling. What, mm -hmm. what is your intuition telling you? Mm -hmm. And when you connect that and find it yourself, I find it it's so much more powerful than perhaps being told what it is, mm -hmm. you know? And that's something I'm very passionate about too. I very much feel that um, the client heals themselves. Mm -hmm. We create this space of calmness, but also um, hearts, you know, when the practitioner is heart-centered, I believe the energy of love is transmitted, the frequency of love, which brings compassion, understanding, and non-judgment. Mm -hmm. I think when people feel that type of energy, they're able to go inward and trust themselves a little more and dig a little deeper and be able to get in touch with the deeper parts of themselves, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that, uh, that heart-centered approach. Is there any, uh, any kind of practices or things that you do to uh, get yourself into that frame of mind before you see a client or afterwards? Yes, I work on centering myself before working for the day. You know, we can, we can very much be in our, uh, I can be busy, busy, <laughs> go, go in my right. personal life. But when I step into my profession, I want to be fully present. So I'll do grounding exercises before I start for the day or, uh, 
different types of breath work that will also kind of bring me into that parasympathetic state so that my, the client can match my energy. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I think is the uh, important for creating the environment too. Like if they come in and I just throw all my problems at them, it's not bringing that energy here. So I want to be in the place that I would like them to come to, mm-hmm. which is in that parasympathetic present centered state Mm -hmm. and we certainly need you know as much parasympathetic (sighs) as we can get because that's quite a hard system to uh to activate when you're kind of just you know going about your day especially in this kind of uh busyness of of modern life absolutely i think a lot of people unfortunately do get stuck in the sympathetic you know, I know it's different around different parts of the country. I find that uh, New York is very much, um, we're, we're way more into thinking than feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I'll go up north and I find that there's, it's a little different there. People are a little bit, it's less busy. It's really about the busyness and the distraction, I think. Mm-hmm. So maybe I shouldn't say it's more the place, not the person, I think it's easier to be in that slower pace when you're in an environment that's slower. Right. You know, I know my energy definitely shifts depending on my environment for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and having more of a natural environment around, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trees, forests, things like that that you can go to. I find that uh, areas that have a lot of that, they tend to have different uh, cultures completely and mm. different ways of relating. Uh, that connection to nature aspect of it. So I wanted to ask you about the role of energy in body work for you. How do you how do you view that? I feel that subtle energy is so elusive, right? There's so many ways that we can look at it. And I definitely have the type of brain where my left and right brain constantly argue over this <laughs> uh, because we can't measure subtle energy. Mm-hmm. So I look at it as consciousness. I look at it as consciousness that um, our, if you compare it to our computer, our brain is the hard drive and our consciousness is the operating system. Mm -hmm. And our operating system is constantly changing or responding to our thoughts, our environment, and things that we put into our body. So I think that within body work, we can make changes within this consciousness or this energy system. Whether we're using acupuncture, yoga, I think any type of um, movement, manipulation that has that intention will make a change within our energy system. Mm -hmm. So body work, I think because it moves that stuck energy... And it can happen in yoga as well. That's when people will sometimes experience emotions that come up, is we've softened that area. We've made it more pliable. Um, It's really the part of the fascial system that becomes solidified in that moment uh, where we have stored that, that, that energy. When it becomes softened, and back to its normal gel-like state and it's free-flowing, that's when I think that the energy can then be released and um, 
you could say many different things, neutralized, transformed. Um, And this is where my left brain doesn't know what to hang on to because it is sort of mystical. I mean, we know how all these practices work and the theories behind them, but they're all theories. Right. Right. So, I mean, I have my own personal views and theories. And What are your own personal views and theories? (laughs) That we do... I think have energy transference between mm-hmm. uh, all living matter, mm-hmm. like you were saying, being in nature. Like we, I think, uh, correspond like on a quantum field level with nature, with people, with animals, and that we can um, sort of either mirror mirror each other or repel each other. You know, it's like I look at it as more of this quantum matrix in the world. Yeah, there's a very, um, very old idea, especially in the ancient uh, texts, that, you know, all of life is one. And we don't uh, necessarily feel that connection because we are, you know, caught up in the identity, our ego, our own worries and, and problems and and things of that nature. So you mentioned energy transference. What does that uh, What does that mean to you? Like, what's what's happening there when you're working with a client? Well, I'll give you my actually my first time that I ever experienced it. Uh, I was maybe a massage therapist for a few months, and I went home that day having the same symptom as my client. I think it was uh, a headache. And so I really just thought I had a headache. But then I started to notice it continued to happen. And that's what started to spark my interest about energy in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really didn't believe in energy (laughs) while I was in college. Uh, I was uh, more on the pragmatic side. But when I started to have these experiences, I really couldn't deny them. It's what started to get me to dig a little bit deeper into what's happening here. So as I dug deeper, I gained mentors along the way, and I learned that you can also control that energy transference. And there's a a few different ways, but my favorite is being centered, is being grounded. Um, I could use the analogy like a garden hose. So if my energy field is the garden hose and the client's energy field is a spider, say, and the spider is trying to climb inside the garden hose. If the garden hose is on full blast with water, the spider is not going to be able to get in. But if you're putting it on just a little trickle, it's going to be able to climb in the hose. So I feel like when we're fully present, fully centered, it's like turning that water on full speed mm-hmm. so that nothing can permeate through. I also think that we could use things like energetically foods and supplementations to make our energy field stronger, anything that we do to support it. Um, things like also meditation. I think that our mind has a big influence on our energy or consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's another way that we can make it stronger. So I had to learn to navigate it through time of how not to. And sometimes it just naturally happens. 
you know, we all can't be 100% every day. But I also have ways that we can neutralize any, any energy transference that comes. And my favorite way is in nature. It is in grounding, like putting my feet in the earth and having that electron exchange that just naturally grounds, I think, and neutralizes our energy, or being around negative ions, which are in nature. I think those help to uh, neutralize uh, our energy field and bring us back to our energy and letting go of anything that we may have taken on that wasn't ours, so to say. Mm -hmm. And when I say ours, I think that I'm really more, again, pointing towards that, um, that quantum field of how there can be particle exchange between two living beings. Mm -hmm. So I kind of keep it in those terms mm -hmm. sometimes when I think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have you ever noticed any kinds of, uh, like, experiences of energy transference? Like when you're working with a client, do you ever get any, like, images that uh, pop up or ideas, or are you kind of just focused on the work? Um. Yes, that's a great question. I think that intuition on both the practitioners and clients part um, are working together. I always want to hear the client's feedback and what they feel intuitively, but I can't help just being a natural sensitive that I sometimes will get intuitive, sometimes either images or even um, just a sense, a sense of, I don't know why I want to work here, but I want to work here. I trust that now. Once I have that feeling, I go right to it. Um, Ten years ago, I used to fight and with my brain and say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not the protocol. That's not what you work on next. Mm -hmm. Now I abandon that and I just follow my intuition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds like the, the best way to go about it. I think there's there's so much about, you know, health, the human body, the mind that we don't understand that, uh, you know, appealing to our intuition and these other uh, forces is very helpful in healing work. In fact, it might be a large part of it. Yes, absolutely. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, since you do uh, myofascial release, what is uh, fascia and what is the fascial system? What is interesting about it to you? The fascial system runs everywhere through the human body. It's ubiquitous throughout the human body. So it runs as one continuous web-like structure from head to toe, front to back, with no interruption whatsoever. So it runs through all of our muscles, all of our bones, all of our organs, right down into the cellular level. Each and every one of our cells has a tiny little fascial system that's connected to the bigger fascial system. And what's fascinating about our fascial system is not just what it provides us structurally, which is our biotensegrity, it gives us our elasticity and stretch, and uh, the structure needed to keep us upright and moving through physical reality. But when you look at its connection to subtle energy, it's the perfect environment for structure and subtle energy to meet. So a large part of the fascial system is collagen and also something that's called ground substance. So both collagen and, and ground substance have a liquid crystalline molecular structure. And 
Collagen in particular is a semiconductor of energy. So we have this semiconductor of energy, we have this crystalline molecular structure that also receives, transmits, and creates biophotons. Bio mm -hmm. And biophotons are necessary for there to be subtle energy present. So our fascial system just naturally does this on its own. So this quantum field of biophotons, along with this liquid crystalline structure, creates this like super highway for intercellular communication. It's like we have this semiconductor that says we received this message and we're going to broadcast it throughout the entire system. So what fascinates me is that this broadcast is going throughout our entire system to each and every cell in our body. So that's, again, I believe... Um, it's affected by our thoughts, by our environment, by the things that we put into our body. So we have a lot of ways to take care of that intercellular communication mm -hmm. as well, just by taking care of structure and energy, like mm -hmm. looking at them. And I don't look at them as separate. You know, I say like it's the fascial system is this lock and key with subtle energy, but really it's a system working together. Like even I can compare it to when people talk about the mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. I like to abandon the word connection there. It's it doesn't need to be connected. That's implying it's disconnected. Right. They're already one to begin with. There it's are, our own uh, concepts and ideas that make them separate things. Absolutely. It's our brain that separates them. Um, we even do it structurally. I have a lot of times I work with clients and they're like, I'm working, they have pain on their right side, but I know it's coming from their left. And they're very confused because I'm, I'm feeling pain here. Well, that's because you're separating in your mind that it's a left and a right. Mm -hmm. It's just one body. Mm -hmm. And we're the ones that are putting it into compartments. And I feel that way with about mind-body and also structure and energy. I think mind energy and structure is one complex that are constantly communicating and constantly affecting one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it explains, um, you know, why there's such a, a difficulty finding that mind body link, right? When they study, um, uh, neurophysiology and neurochemistry and things like that and brain scans, they're able to associate these like physical states or these levels of uh, neurotransmitters with someone's internal, uh, you know, their perception of things, which is, you know, the mind, which is everything that we experience is the mind in a sense. Mm -hmm. And there's this uh, gap between those two things. And I think there's a gap because they're not, they're not separate. They're like a, along a continuum perhaps, or really just one thing that you can you can look at, you know, two sides of the same coin that you can't really separate out. That's why I think any any healing approach that doesn't take into account both aspects of that, it kind of misses uh, it misses something. Like if you if you focus too much on pure, you know, um, uh, chemistry and compounds, or too much just on uh, the minds and and things like that, you really need both. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Absolutely, I feel the same way. So, what what happens to the uh, the uh, fascia system that 
causes issues with health. So I'd like to explain how the fascial system works to answer that question. Mm -hmm. So it has three major components. Like we talked about elastin fibers, collagen fibers, and this ground substance. So when we say there's a fascial restriction, what we're actually saying is this ground substance, which should be in a gel-like state. It's actually H3O2. It's Mm. this viscous gel-like form. It's a polysaccharide gel. When it becomes solidified, all of the muscle fibers, collagen fibers, and elastin fibers get stuck in this solidification, and they're unable to slide across each other and do their job correctly, Mm -hmm. simply put. Through myofascial release, we use gentle sustained pressure of five minutes or more to bring that solidification back to its normal gel-like state. And when that happens, it creates space for these fibers to expand into. So I want to explain that first because the things that cause that solidification in the first place is repetitive movement, inflammation, inflammatory response, and also trauma, whether it be emotional or physical trauma. So I'll see many, many people, people, some people will come in and they have a structural issue from surgery. Someone has repetitive movement. Uh, someone else might have, you know, an autoimmune disorder or neurological dysfunction that is causing more inflammation in their body or, or even neurological, more of that spasticity or repetitive movement. Mm-hmm. And then you have someone who... who is storing a lot of trauma in their body. I think we all have a little bit of each. You know, obviously we all haven't had surgeries, but when it comes to this repetitive movement, inflammation, and stored trauma, I find that a lot of the clients I work with have um, more than one of those. And sometimes someone will come in just for a structural issue. Say it's limited range of motion, uh, discomfort in the body, or they have a goal of they want to, to function better during some sport. And then something will come up that is uh, trauma stored. And it again, they come in with a, a structural reason, but you can't help because of that, of that mind-body complex. Mm-hmm. Here, it'll show up in different ways. Or sometimes people will come in who have a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of trauma, and they have this sort of, just get, just take this away from me, get this out of me. And we have to really focus on, well, it's about, again, moving out of our brain, trying to figure it out, attaching to the story and moving more into that somatic healing space so that you can discover what it is, so that you can move it out. Um, I think it's lovely when people say the word healer. You know, it's a compliment, but I really feel like we heal ourselves. And so I consider myself a facilitator of healing, you know, creating the space and the environment for it to happen, for that innate awareness. And this particularly, all of this study and what I'm repeating, I learned at uh, studying with John F. Barnes, his approach to myofascial release. He combines uh, subtle energy, intuitive movement, which he calls unwinding, and structural. 
So I really want to just give uh, credit there that this is where most of my study of mind-body happened. And then I continued my uh, studies to go just some down some different avenues because it fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Where does uh, craniosacral therapy fit into all of this? Craniosacral therapy is also considered a fascial therapy. It focuses on uh, our central nervous system. So what we're our goal is is a, it's a it's a nervous system goal. We're trying to bring balance to the craniosacral rhythm, which is the rhythm of cerebral spinal fluid within the brain and spinal cord. And our brain and spinal spinal cord is wrapped with this deeper fascia called dura mater. So because of the interconnectedness of our fascia from right from the outside down to the cellular level, we can make changes within the fascial system on that deeper level. So craniosacral therapy is really designed to bring balance to that rhythm. We should have a rhythm of it goes of expansion, contraction, and has about six to eight cycles per minute when it's working properly. But when we have stress or we've had other types of issues going on in our physical body, sometimes this cycle can get too fast or too slow or too uneven. So craniosacral therapy's main focus is bringing that uh, cerebral spinal fluid, the craniosacral rhythm, back to its balance of six to eight cycles per minute. Mm -hmm. Um, But because it's a fascial system uh, therapy that we're working with, All the other things that we were talking about earlier as far as structural changes and somatic emotional response happens there too. They're very similar in touch. Craniosacral is a little bit lighter, um, but I tend to blend them both together. And I use more MFR principle all the time, I think just because that's where my roots were. So I added on craniosacral later on in my Mm -hmm. career. What do you think is that that key thing about myofascial release, that principle that that you talk about? Well, in both classes, you are taught to be fully present and heart-centered to bring Mm -hmm. that energy. Um, I just feel that I, because I did most of my studies with myofascial release, that's where my first understanding came from. But they are very similar in the way that they view the body and the fascial system. I'll say that they they complement each other that way. So they may have different theories with how somatic emotional response should happen, or I should maybe not should, but prefer it to happen. I just tend to gravitate more towards the John F. Barnes approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I've learned many cranial uh, fascial techniques in his courses as well. So how do you think uh, craniosacral therapy is is working? You mentioned a little bit about um, it allowing that cerebral spinal fluid to kind of flow through. Is there anything else you think that's at work there in craniosacral therapy? Yeah, I think the, the again, the um, energy that we were discussing earlier as well, that um, stuck energy within the body can be released also. But... 
I love to use cranial sacral just within the first 10 minutes of session because I find that it really quickly brings us into that parasympathetic state. It works wonderful in that way. And I have some clients who will come in just for cranial sacral therapy, and it's only about five grams of pressure through the whole treatment. It's very, very light, but it's designed that way because our parasympathetic nervous system would just kick us out and wouldn't let us make any changes if it felt any type of threat. So anything deeper, this is, again, the craniosacral therapy, um, that it won't, it'll put up a guard and it won't la- allow you to make that change specifically within the flow of cerebral spinal fluid, that change. That's, that's what they are, teach us. Mm-hmm. So I find that Sometimes I'm even still amazed because it's such a light touch and people have such a powerful response. I'll work with people who have mostly stress, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and they find that the results of the treatment will last a a while for them. So I'll have people who will come in maintenance either biweekly or monthly, depending on their lifestyle. Mm What are some some lessons you've learned from your clients? I want to say that my clients have been my greatest teacher <laughs> over the years. Um, early on, I think my biggest lessons were um, where I didn't bring that peaceful energy in. You know, when I was kind of transitioning from massage into myofascial, I was still very much a beginner and learning and healing myself. So I think when, you know, I would, I would start the session with very chatty, you know, and catching up and, you know, sometimes that's great depending on, on the, on the client, but I was doing it all the time. So I found when I would practice being in that present moment, that the results would be so much different. Like when I would create the environment, that calm, peaceful environment within myself and starting to work with the client, that they would, um, I don't match that. They would go there much easier and they would be able to have an easier time getting into more of like a meditative parasympathetic state. Um, That was a, a big lesson for me when I first started in my career. And I think that also just how everybody's individual. No one is a protocol. That has been one of my biggest lessons through clients as well, is we present with these symptoms, but there's a different cause for everybody. So I think a big that has been a big lesson as well, is to not look at uh, somebody as, well, you have A, B, and C, so you go in this box. Mm-hmm. There are no boxes. It's a, it's a journey to discover what it is for that person. So I think clients, it's like the more that you practice, especially when you're working with the subconscious, is to really just be open and to allow it to go through any avenue and not try to pigeonhole it to be in one place, but for allow it to be where it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that approach absolutely makes a lot of sense. I think that's... Certainly what's what's lacking in a lot of, you know, more uh, conventional medicine is that that hyper focus on 
you know, what's like the standard of care, what, what's like the symptom picture and like kind of like algorithms for they have these symptoms and so it's this and that. It's really helpful for discovering, you know, a cause uh, within that uh, language of uh, medical terminology. But the thing is people experience uh, symptoms completely differently for completely different causes. You know, uh, 10 people uh, come in and they have anxiety, right? And it's the same thing on paper. It's anxiety. They might even have the same, you know, like test testing scores on their anxiety levels on the uh, uh, generalized anxiety assessment. Uh, but they're all for a different reason. They're completely for a different cause. And unless you work with that specific deeper cause, how how can you how can you help? Mm. So the the symptoms, the way I view it is, they're like a signpost. Uh, there's the saying in in uh, Zen Buddhism. It says. You know, when somebody uh, points at the moon, you don't look at the finger, you look at the moon. Hmm. And I think uh, symptoms are kind of like the finger pointing at something. And when you approach it, as, as you're saying, in that uh, holistic mindset, you're looking for what is that moon? You know, what are these symptoms? What are these experiences actually really pointing to? And then, you know, working with that and it makes for a much better experience. And I think it's much more effective, too. Yes, absolutely. I feel like it gives not only authenticity and individuality, but a way to look at things as a bigger picture. And really that they're just messages. Like what do, what is this symptom telling you specifically? Mm-hmm. And that's what I always find fascinating is it's a different answer for, for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's like uh, interested in pursuing like a healing profession or anything within the health world, um, there's a lot of moments where it's like lots of twists and turns. It's uncertain of what exactly one's going to do. You know, you're in school, you're learning about some subjects you might be interested in, but you're not sure exactly what to do. What uh, What's your guidance for people who are kind of trying to figure out their way within, you know, the uh, healthcare space, within the wellness space, that kind of thing, maybe relating your own personal stories and things like that? I would say follow what resonates with you. Uh, that has been my experience. I've kind of jumped into things um, and different studies that my heart pulled me towards, and I didn't know why, but I just let it allowed it to lead me, mm-hmm. and I found my niche there. Mm-hmm. I think when my brain was making plans, um, it's lovely. I you know I like lear- learning all different types of things, but when I followed my heart, then my heart is in my practice, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that idea of, you know, uh, the way I think of it is uh, following your excitement, what interests and, and excites you that you're passionate about. Uh, the healing work is tough work. Mm-hmm. So if one doesn't have that passion for what they're specifically doing, it can, I mean, the levels of burnout and within the health field are, you know, enormous and it's, it's really unfortunate. One of the things that uh, my teacher, John Barnes, says that I think about almost a lot when I first started out was that you can only take someone as far as you have gone. Mm -hmm. So I went for lots of treatment myself Mm -hmm. and I've done that with each modality I've practiced also. So that is something else that I would say to a practitioner just starting out is that also be the patient of what you're learning because you'll learn a lot from that too. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned before you were doing uh 
TV work, and then you started pursuing um, a massage school. What was that big like uh, transition? What What were you thinking at the time? What led you specifically to 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 that? Um, I think when I was working in television production, I was very young and it was very exciting to be in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. You know, the energy of Manhattan is so exciting. Mm-hmm. But the work was so draining, especially as a production assistant. They'll work you like 12, 14 hours a day and then see you in five hours from now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so very demanding. And again, my heart, my heart really wasn't into it. And I was very disconnected from my body and from my emotions. So when I transitioned into massage school, that was me following my heart. I really didn't have a logical answer. I was feeling very lost at the time, unfulfilled. And when I went to the open house with a friend and I listened to the dean speak about holistic medicine, it was just a a light went off in my head and said, wow, this makes so much sense to me. Like, I want to say it it resonated with me on a soul level, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't living it yet. Mm -hmm. I, I say massage therapy changed my life. It made me start to look at my health and what was happening in my body. Um, And then myofascial release, I wound up taking classes a few years after, or maybe a year after I graduated. And that's when I was able to connect with my emotions. But my very first class that I went to for MFR, I was still very much in this disconnected, um, pragmatic space as far as... uh, how structure works. So I went to the front of the room and I took out my book and my pen, you know, first row, I'm ready to take all these notes. (laughs) And my teacher says, put your notebook away. We're going to be using our intuition for class. And I was a little taken back. I was, I was overly skeptical at the time too. And I, I think healthy skepticism is great, but at that time I was overly skeptic. So my teacher kept bringing people on stage Um, to show the techniques that we're going to learn in class, and they're called demos. So all of the the therapists that were going up for demos were spontaneously going into this, um, he calls it unwinding. It's this intuitive movement, and this is when this somatic emotional response happens. And I sat there, and I was still, it resonated with with my spirit. It did. I, I was like, I'm very gravitated towards this, but my mind got in the way and said, don't be a fool. These are actors. They're just taking you for a ride. And then um, the, my teacher says, does anyone want to come up for the next demo? So I raised my hand because I was going to prove that this was mm-hmm. just a, you know, a show. And I get up on stage, and he starts working on my jaw, And all of a sudden, my body starts to go through this unwinding, and I'm not making it happen. Like, Mm. my my head is moving, my body's moving and shaking, and tears started to come up, and I started to cry in front of 170 people. And at that time, I didn't even show emotion to my closest friends. But it was so natural, and it wasn't my cognitive brain doing it. So after that moment, I looked at not only human beings differently, but I looked at all living matter differently and our, and our world differently. Mm. And I really, that's really what inspired me to move on and say, how can we all have this connection? Once I experienced the connection without, with 
not having it for so long in my life, I realized like, what a missing link that is to our health. And that was why I'm really passionate about helping other people make that connection. Or sometimes people have that connection already and we help you deep help deepen it. Mm-hmm. You can always go further. There's always more more layers. And that was my own healing experience was I just continued to I found a therapist after that class and I continued to go through the layers over the next couple years. Mm. Um, so you kind of had this profound experience that uh, really like affirmed that you were moving in the right direction. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was uh, mind blowing at the time mm-hmm. for sure. I was really mm-hmm. I couldn't put words to it for some for some time. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, yeah. that's one thing that gets you beyond uh, you know uncertainty and 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 doubt is having an actual experience that wow this is really something. And I think that's a really good thing to to look for if you're in a healing path and you're not really necessarily sure where you should go or what kind of work you want to do. I think that you know that excitement and that intuition is going to be the the big leader there so I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, neuro-linguistic programming Uh, so so what is that neuro-linguistic programming is really a way that we can rewire our brain or rewire our thoughts and you can compare it to hypnosis in a way because you're working with the subconscious, but it, you don't have to go um, as deep as you do in uh, hypnosis. Like hypnosis, traditionally, you go into a deep trance and then you go into certain exercises. Neurolinguistic programming, some of the exercises can be done with your eyes open and awake. Mm. Um, I tend to use it more with a deep meditative state, but it takes your language. That's the linguistic part. Mm. So what I love about it so much is that I ask the client a series of questions, and then we make the meditation based on their answers. So the whole meditation, the whole exercise is their words. Nothing that... Um, is being said to the subconscious is in my words whatsoever. So I think that that's what makes it very powerful um, and makes quick changes. Again, we'll find that I'm working with someone who really is, I really want to figure out what's happening with me physically. The, The doctors can't figure out what's happening with me. I'm not able to connect with my instincts on it. So that's the conscious level. And when we can go deeper into the subconscious level, we find that um, there's a, another answer there about the physical uh, symptom, of more of a, a link of where to move forward from here, or to just change our thought about it. So we can change thoughts consciously all we want, but if our subconscious is stuck on a thought, we can only change it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when people are making conscious efforts Mm -hmm. to make changes in their life or to heal themselves. They can take all the action that they want, but if there's something that the subconscious is holding on to, that's really the avenue to go to make a change that can now surface to the conscious level. Um, so what are the, uh, the tools of neuro-linguistic programming? Is it like you're asking questions or...? 
Yes, there's many, many different exercises and they all are asking questions or they're reframing things. So we take things that you might be looking at in one way and help reframe it in the other. But one of the biggest principles that I love about NLP is that no matter what behavior or symptom that you is unwanted, they all have a subconscious positive intention. Mm. So I'll take something simple. Somebody is a smoker. They want to quit smoking. But they're subconscious. You would say that's not a positive intention. But even though the behavior is unwanted, the subconscious might be getting comfort out of smoking. Maybe it feels protected. You know, there's so many different things that it could be getting from it. So I don't help people quit smoking. I'm just using it as an example. I only use it um, towards physical symptoms. But I think this is a good analogy because no, most of us don't want to smoke, right? But people find it difficult. So if we can find the positive intention that the subconscious has for that, we can now say, okay, well, that's great. Thank you so much for that positive intention. What else could you come up with? If you're providing me comfort, what other ways could I find comfort other than smoking? Mm -hmm. And the subconscious will come up with different answers. And that comes from the client as well. So when we use that now with, I have this symptom that I don't want in my body, it's a headache. Well, let's find out what's the positive intention for that headache. What is it actually showing up for? Um, and what other ways can it fulfill that positive intention other than the headache? Mm. And that's where, again, I love it because it comes from the client. They're finding their own answer. Mm. I think that's a, that's a really profound and uh, important idea that all these things that occur, our actions, uh, behaviors, things like that, even if they're on their surface, they don't seem to be good. There's uh, an underlying kind of like intention. There's a, a reason um, why they exist. Uh, a great example of that is in people who have, you know, like a, like a rough childhood. They're constantly under stress and, and things like that. And so they kind of develop, the ner their nervous system adapts to that, uh, to that situation, right? Um, and it's at that time, it's for survival, right? That's what gets them through. That's what gets them through the difficult experiences. But then later in life, when those original factors aren't there, when that stress or you know uh, abuse or anything like that isn't isn't there anymore, uh, but their nervous system is still uh, adapted and kind of functioning in that mode. Um, and I think it, it really helps when when looking into those kind of issues to. To understand that that people's behaviors and their actions are really a lot of them are attempts at self healing or or managing and and like you said it's about giving like a better a better option a better alternative but I think it's much more uh, it's much more heart centered to understand that um, uh, addictions are another example where that's the case there's a lot of uh, you know stigma around addictions mm -hmm. if you're addicted to something like smoking or, or whatever, that there's something like wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera, or all these kind of um, this cultural feedback when really most addictions are, are they're an attempt at self-healing. They're managing something. Either somebody's, you know, self-medicating or they're trying to, you know, balance their, their mood or, or things like that. 
but when it when like a practitioner approaches it from like a place of judgment it doesn't it doesn't help it makes the whole situation worse right because then you have like guilt and shame and then what does guilt and shame do it makes one feel bad and then what does feeling bad do it just perpetuates whatever that pattern is um, but approaching it from that what is this doing for you and like being open to that response that it could actually be doing something good in some way it's not ideal necessarily but it has some useful purpose yeah and i also think it's fascinating you're talking about like triggering somebody's pattern but also like that addiction that we could have to the cortisol response mm-hmm. of when that, that childhood you were just explaining like our brains could get so used to cortisol being released that we don't know what to do when we're not having it released mm-hmm. so it's like roller coaster relationships yeah someone who you know had a lot of difficulties earlier in life difficulties uh with, with their parents and things a lot of stress a lot of roller coastering in the home it kind of get, continues uh onward into life with getting into kinds of patterns of relationship where it's like like you were saying like seeking that that uh that that feeling of like cortisol or adrenaline or something like that and it can be very confusing yeah you know? we'll mimic and recreate it in other relationships mm-hmm. and we don't really know that we're trying to get a cortisol hit mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah and why would you ever want a cortisol yeah. hit? That's, <laughs> that's really the question with that so body awareness how how do you approach that what are some techniques that you particularly like that you either use for yourself or for your clients uh, tuning into sensations for my clients, especially if it's something that's new. It's giving the first the brain permission to continue having thoughts. Like if we try to, okay, we're going to meditate and not have any thoughts. That's just... Good luck ask, with that. Yeah, good luck with that's that. That's a thought also. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to have any thoughts as a thought. So. Uh, but just starting to tune into sensations in the body. What is it feeling? with And not having judgment about it too. You know, just allowing it the sensation to be what it is without having to, you know, label it, connect it to something, but again, being in that present moment with it, just being with it. So I think the practice of that is a great way to get there. So we'll start out slowly with that on the treatment table and then encourage people to take it at home too. You know, like I'll teach clients how to do self-myofascial release at home and I give them some suggestions but I tell them your body's going to be different on a daily basis so the best way to start is to get into that sensation space start feeling your body what does it need from you in that moment what part of your body needs attention in that moment and I think we can even relate that to nutrition as well. What do do I feel like my body needs today? Do I have to follow, um, I'm supposed to have a green juice every day or do, do I have some, a different thing that I want every morning? So I think we can do it in a a few different ways physically. Um, and just being mindful, you know, that's a great practice too. I think the more mindful we can be, that also will just naturally create body awareness but I think the biggest key is Mm non-judgment once we bring judgment into it I think it creates more stress in the body we're being hard on ourselves we're not really being aware so awareness is this 
space that's, I want to say, soft mm-hmm. and allowing, not a, not a space that feels constricted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, techniques uh, I really like, it's called a progressive muscular relaxation. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Uh, so basically, you just sit as as normal in your kind of meditation pose, sitting in a chair or cross-legged, and you close your eyes and just kind of allow yourself to breathe in and out fully, tune into the body, the sensations you have, and then you go through every every muscle in your body and you just you re, uh, you consciously allow it to relax. Mm. So a lot of uh, a lot of us, we hold uh, tension in like our shoulders, around our eyes, in our jaw, and in this kind of like constant state of uh, tension in our back. And you, you just breathe deeply in and out. And one of the ways I like to tie the breath to the, the practice is that when you breathe in, you say, I am aware of tension here. And then when you, you breathe out, you say, I release tension there. So... Like as I breathe in, I'm aware of tension in my shoulders. As I breathe out, I relax the tension in my shoulders. Uh, it's kind of internally to yourself. You go through your whole body. Um, and it's it's really interesting what happens because you'll kind of go through and you'll notice, oh, wow, I can actually really relax much more than I thought. Um, and then you'll go through and then some other part will be tense again. And you just gently bring your attention back to that and allow it to release. And eventually, after you do this for about 10 minutes or so, you start feeling very calm and your body kind of can then relax as one. And so the final part of the the practice is allowing all of that kind of like release tension in your body and kind of almost like gravity is like pulling down on you and you're you're just like made of like jello now and you're you're one you're one body and it's all just relaxed as one. And then you just breathe and you just enjoy that. Um, there's not really even any, there's not many medications that can even cause the kind of peaceful, relaxed feeling that you can get from like a deep meditation where you're just completely relaxed, completely in parasympathetic. Um, and it helps for problem solving too, you know. The, uh, the analytical mind, uh, it tends to kind of run based off of the past. It's kind of like what happened in the past, what worked in the past, what didn't work in the past. But we don't live in the past. You know, we only live in the this this exact moment. Uh, and there it is, and there it's gone, and now it's back. So, uh, so that's a technique I, I really like quite a bit. Is there um, is there any other practices that you like to do uh, personally that you find helpful? Um, I love to practice yoga. And I'll follow what my, my body wants for that day. I don't have, like, a specific regimen. And also self-myofascial release. I like, in, I feel like it also helps to center me, release energy, open my body. And then doing different types of energy techniques, too. So we talked about that intuitive movement um, that we call unwinding and myofascial release. So you could use self-unwinding. And it's really um, fascinating. You can kind of compare it to, like, if you watch a cat who's stretching and, and it's in the sun and it's moving all different ways. It's not thinking about how it's moving. It's just allowing its body to lead So self-unwinding is really just allowing your body to lead. And when you go into that somatic uh, place, that connection, 
that is when you also make a connection to your subconscious. Mm -hmm. So very much um, subconscious changes, I feel like as they're made on like a meditative level, you know, all different avenues to get there. Self-unwinding is a way to get there too. And then there's also another technique that we call rebounding, Mm -hmm. which is this oscillating movement. So you can recreate it within yourself by like you stand and you have soft knees and maybe you just bounce up and down and you can go fast, you go slow, whatever your body wants. But it's actually a way to not only start opening up fascial restriction in the body, but it's also starting to get any stuck energy moving. And I find that it's great for nervous energy too. Like if I'm going to do something that I'm nervous about, I'll give myself a few minutes of rebounding. And I think it also like stimulates the part of the brain um, that helps us relax a little bit more too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are my, my, my go-tos on a daily basis, depending on how I'm feeling for the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to have some kind of, uh, you know, self-care practice that you can do uh, that you enjoy. You know, some people aren't too into meditation, but they love yoga. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, love going for a walk, but like you couldn't get them to go for a run, like even if they had a gun to their head kind of thing. So it's, it's all about finding what works for you. And I think that's really important, especially if you're, you know, doing uh, doing like health work. Um, either receiving or assisting people in it. Um, it's really, really important. Yeah, I love what you said too because I feel like finding the movement that that resonates with us is so important. I found early on in life, like when exercise or movement feels like a chore, it's not for me. It's not the right one. Yeah, I want to do what it is that feels good. I love just taking walks in nature, mm. slow yoga, where when I was younger, I, 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 had to, I had to run the five miles. I had to force myself to, to do the power yoga, which is some people love, but I did not love. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to pass that on to people too. Like find what you love to do, you know, mm-hmm. and your body will follow you. Your, your, mm-hmm. your body goals will follow you. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask... Uh, to kind of segue into another topic. Uh, so you have your own uh, private practice here. You're just next door to me here at the, the Herbal Remedy. Uh, you're at uh, Touch of Health out here in uh, Sable, New York. Um, I want to ask you about tips for running a private practice for anyone who's interested in you know starting their own healing work or business or really like things you wish you had known um, Anything that comes to mind with that? Uh, I guess two things automatically come to mind is consistency and healthy boundaries Mm. with clients, too. Um, Consistency, I think, is, you know, um, and people might disagree with this, but this is how I was able to build a practice was I would be consistent with my days and my hours. Um, so when the summer came along, I would still work my Saturdays, you know, I might take one off here and there, but in the beginning I made sure that if I had a regular client at this time and this day, I tried to keep that schedule going. Mm -hmm. And then as my practice grew over time, I was able to cater my hours a little bit more towards, um, 
what was best for my personal life as well. But I felt that that consistency within the first five years was just so important um, that if I say I'm going to be here at this day and time and available, that I am. Um, and then healthy boundaries, I think, are important. And I bring this up because I really failed at this when, when I first started. <laughs> As many uh, healing practitioners will attest Yeah, to. where I told way too much about my personal life to people. Um, and I think that's very normal. I think it's very, especially when you are a genuine, caring person and someone opens up to you, you want to open up to them too. You want to share with them, me too. Um, but I was just doing it a little too much. So I think kind of like drawing back and listening more to the client. And I think also uh, some people just starting out in their practice, they might just be natural at that. You know, these are just where I felt like I needed improvement with in, in the beginning. Um, and there are so many different reasons for that. But I realized the biggest reason um, for kind of having a little bit more of a boundary with revealing so much is I had something in my life that happened that was very painful and it was just natural life happening um but I had when I went into work for the next few weeks after that happened because people knew so much about my personal life everyone was asking about it Mm. and I had to tell this painful story over and over and over again and I feel like that was my first lesson in oh, this is why. It's it's also to protect me, mm-hmm. you know, in a way of I'm able to stay focused and centered at work and not be um, focused on my personal life. You know, like it's easy to connect with people and to chat with them and to be friends with them. I'm very, it's easy for me to make those kinds of connections mm-hmm. with people. Um, but I realize it's really taking away from the client. Mm-hmm. you know, as genuine as it is, as friendly as it is. Mm-hmm. So I had to get better at that over time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. What are some ways that you uh, found that you can establish boundaries and some examples of that in uh, terms of client work? Yes, because it's not just um, per- personal boundaries. It's time boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's res- respectful boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, if a client is in any way disrespectful, they need to leave. Mm-hmm. They, they're no longer welcome. Where I see a lot of therapists in the beginning, they put up with a lot of stuff because they're nervous to lose a client. But what I found is when you lose that client, almost two more people show up in their place mm-hmm. that are respectful to you. Frees you up for a, a better one. That's Frees more you up for a better one. Yes. Less stressful. Absolutely. And I also feel like this is just my my personal spiritual belief is you tell the universe, no, I'm not accepting that. And then they send you what you accept, mm. you know. Um, so and then the time boundary, too, is if you have an appointment at one o'clock and you showed up at one thirty, I can't go over. You know, mm. you're if, say if your time was one to two, I we need to stay within that that time, that time mm-hmm. boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's about we're, this is a relationship. We're both being accountable here. So I'm showing up, I'm being fully present, I'm being on time mm-hmm. and we need to expect that from the client as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause if, you know, one client goes over, then another client is affected and then it becomes this 
kind of a train wreck type of situation? Has that happened before? Um, You know, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm kind of like really on time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I've been really good through the years. Like even if it was just five minutes in between clients, I would get the next person on the table on time. But what I found was I was giving my break away to people. Mm -hmm. So I might have been starting on time with the next person, but I'm not giving myself any time to uh, center myself. Maybe I need to have a snack or a drink before I start doing something physical again. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that uh, what I was really doing was when I was compensating for their lateness, I was taking away the time that I needed to replenish myself. And I think that's very important to avoid burnout. Mm-hmm. Um Pre-2020, my schedule was 15 minutes in between each person. Mm -hmm. And when we uh, opened up practice again, June of 2020, I had to put more space in between people so that I could uh, properly disinfect. You know, everyone was um, nervous about coming back to places in person at the time. Mm -hmm. So I allowed more time in between people. But what I found was that time helped me so much And I really needed a half an hour in between each client so that I can avoid burnout. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until that transition happened, I didn't even realize I was burning out. When we, here in New York, um, it was about March of 2020, and we were asked to stay at home. And that Mm -hmm. stay at home lasted three months. And during those three months, I discovered how burnt out I was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know because... I was going, 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 but once you took the batteries out, it was obvious. So Mm. it's like I got this restart, and the half hour in between was key. So I think it's just, it's a combination of self-care, these healthy boundaries, and we're not asking anything too specific. It's pretty basic. Be respectful, be on time. Um... And I have to say, through the years, I attract such lovely clients. You know, I there's been maybe a handful of times that maybe someone's been disrespectful. You know, but I've been in practice for 15 years, so mm-hmm. you know, you run a, you run across it <laughs> some, right. at times. Mm-hmm. But the majority of my clients are are lovely. Mm-hmm. How uh, how did you notice that you were finding many of your clients? Was it through word of mouth? Was it through uh, events you were doing, through writings you were doing? What was kind of your, you know, your main outreach? Mine was word of mouth from other clients, other clients telling their friends, their family members. Also, I would network with a lot of other healthcare professionals. And I would form a relationship where I've also used their services. They've used mine, and we trust each other. so referrals from not only healthcare practitioners, but from other clients. I did do some um, networking groups in the beginning, uh, but what I found was I really didn't get many clients from them. I learned how to run a business from them. Mm-hmm. I would sit, you know, we'd meet like 60 professionals, 6.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and uh, talk, everyone would talk about what it is that they do, and we would try to refer to each other. Um, I didn't really get many referrals, but I really learned a lot. I learned a lot of um, what goes into running a business because there's so much on the back end that unless you've experienced it, you really don't 
know that it's there. You know, there's the computer work. There's, there's um, we do have to put some effort into marketing as well. Um, but so many tiny little nuances of your space just being the perfect space, um, everything being in working order. There's a lot to be on top of. So I found like the um, community of other people experiencing this and giving me solutions to problems that they went through. That was very helpful for mm -hmm. me just as a practice point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a, a business owner of any kind, you have to uh, wear many, many hats. <laughs> many hats. Many hats. <laughs> Too many hats really to fit yeah. into a closet, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but that's what keeps it interesting, at least. So it's good in terms of uh, if you have like a creative mind, there's always something that could be done. Absolutely. And you also have to have that inner, I'm willing to take a risk part yeah. of yourself too. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think too, one of the most important things and I hear again and again from very successful people is really find that thing that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Cause that's, that's the thing that really holds you on like those, those tough days when things don't go quite right. It's, is the work that I'm doing, is this business something I'm really passionate about? Do I actually, you know, do I care that people get this product or service? Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing, that's something that has has brought me through high times and, and low times, so just remembering that uh, the work is helping people heal naturally, so. Yeah, I feel like those are the best, those are always the type of practitioners, too, that I have uh, worked with over the years, because mm -hmm. it's genuine. Mm -hmm. It's genuine, and you could tell that they want to help you. It's not about um, any underlying motive, and, mm -hmm. and I think we can sense that with practitioners, too. I've had clients tell me over the years, I, I walked into the, this office, and I, I just knew the genuine care wasn't there. Mm -hmm. There might have been... Um, services available, but they didn't feel that connection that they really care if I get better or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That really is the most important thing. I mean, at the end of the day, we are, you know, standing on a rapidly revolving uh, rock that's like hurtling through space called the earth. Um, so, you know, we make the most of our time and, and being passionate about your work is a great way of, uh, great way of doing that. Yeah, I don't really feel like I work too much. Not while I'm working with clients. The yes. back end stuff, I'm working. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the uh, thing that's kind of interesting of uh, starting a business, and I've started a few, is, you know, there's like the kind of like craft aspect of it. Uh, so if you're like a healthcare practitioner, it's like actually the healing work that you do. Um, but the business side is like completely different. It's like its own thing. They they synergize, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of whole a whole another beast. Uh, but if you really love what you do, you you'll find your way through. You know, and definitely you know your customers or clients or, or patients they kind of lead you along to where you need to go in a lot of ways. There's this principle about really listening to your uh, your client or customer about what it is that they really want because really at the end of the day um, any business or any work is about serving people and the question is how can you how can you serve them so I love that that's great lovely said yes well thank you uh, thank you so much for being on the Herbal Hour podcast Marissa uh, what is your website where people can find more information about you uh, my website is touchofhealthny.com and thank you so much for having me. This is a been, great uh, conversation. It's been an absolute it. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you again, Marissa.